Against the backdrop of our new reality here in 2020, the pandemic, the murder hornets, the wanton disintegration of the rule of law by those with the most privilege and power, is the taking of the U.S. Census. The census is administered once every 10 years. It is a count of those who reside in the United States at that specific point in time. And the primary reason we do it is so the federal government can allocate each state's share of seats in the House of Representatives. But there are other reasons the census is important, besides the fact that it is required for every American to participate. The census tells the federal and state governments how to allocate resources. Generally speaking, the more people your city or state can claim, the more support it is eligible to receive. It provides a foundational basis for statistical research into the health and living conditions of people within our borders, and is a great source of information for academic researchers and interest groups, as well as public health and community advocates. And it will be helpful for our children, grandchildren, and other descendants as they learn about their roots. As someone whose side hobby is genealogy, census records have been invaluable in tracing back the ancestry of both myself and my husband Chuckles. In the United States, full census records are opened up to the public 72 years after they are recorded. So for example, the 1950 census will be released in two years. And given that this will be the first census that may possibly include my parents, that one excites me. One of the data points the U.S. Census has tracked pretty consistently is race. Now, how they've tracked race has evolved, with increasing racial and ethnic categories over time, at least for the most part, there are a few exceptions. But this overall expansion of racial and ethnic categories identified in the census has been a reflection of both immigration patterns and changing attitudes towards people of color. But if you notice, there is not a separate category devoted to people of Middle Eastern descent. And given that most of what we call the Middle East is located in Asia and Africa, it might be surprising that according to the United States, people of Middle Eastern descent would be classified as white. This is a bit of an anomaly compared to a number of other Western countries who classify people of Middle Eastern descent as Asian. Why are people of Middle Eastern descent, including Arabs, Iranians, and Middle Eastern people of many other ethnicities, considered white in the United States? This classification was no accident. I am your host, Jay Poole, and this is Potstirer Podcast. Welcome to Potstirer Podcast, where politics, religion, and history collide, and it's not always polite. In the last episode, I touched on a number of events in the history of the Middle East and the Mediterranean, from the decline of the Roman Empire to the rise of the Ottoman Empire, including events such as the Great Schism and the Crusades. This wasn't a comprehensive overview of Middle East history. The region's history goes back much, much further than I touched on. But the idea was to give you a bit of a picture of the Middle East as a region 
prior to his interactions with the fledgling United States. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, definitely check that out. In this episode, I will discuss the founding of the early history of the United States in the early days of U.S.-Middle East relations, focusing on the early decades of America's existence. I will also briefly discuss Middle Eastern immigration to the U.S. during this time frame. The period of U.S. history prior to the Second World War is considered a relatively quiet period in U.S.-Middle East relations, but there's a little bit more to the story. So let's start out in the 1700s. The American Revolutionary War, the war that the North American colonies fought and ultimately won against Great Britain, occurred between 1775 and 1783. And during that time, in 1776, the Declaration of Independence was drafted, signed, and sent to King George III of England. At this point, the colonies that would become the United States of America officially severed ties with their parent country and declared independence. This is when the U.S. was said to have been founded. The new United States, now no longer under the protection of the legendary British Navy on the high seas, were on their own. Now, they still needed to trade with countries on the other side of the Atlantic, so merchant vessels still needed to make sea voyages. But the U.S. had no navy of their own to protect those ships from pirate attacks, so other arrangements needed to be made. This prompted America's first contact with the Middle East as an independent country. In 1777, the United States entered into a treaty of friendship with the country of Morocco under Sultan Mohammed III. He declared that the newly formed U.S., which was still fighting the Revolutionary War at the time, would be on his list of countries under the protection of the Sultanate, which meant that the U.S. would have safe passage into the Mediterranean Sea and along the coast. Morocco was the first country to recognize the United States, and this treaty is the longest unbroken friendship treaty involving the U.S. So, historically speaking, this was kind of a big deal. But while the U.S. would now have some protection from Morocco, this didn't mean that naval voyages across the Atlantic were in any way safe. At this time, besides the concerns over high winds, storms, icebergs, coral reefs, accidents and dangers on board, and maintaining good health on long voyages, ocean trips could also be subject to attacks by pirates. As is the case today, piracy or the attack and robbery of boats by criminals arriving on other ships was an issue. And from the 1600s up until this point, the pirates that were essentially the kings of the Atlantic Ocean were the Barbary Pirates. The Barbary Pirates, also known as the Barbary Corsairs or the Ottoman Corsairs, were pirates operating off the coast of North Africa, usually from the ports of Algiers, Tunis, and Tripoli in modern-day Algeria, Tunisia, and Libya. Algiers, Tunis, and Tripoli, as well as Morocco, would be collectively known as the Barbary States, named after the Berber people, an ethnic group who hail from the region. Like a lot of terms like this, this term Barbary is a misnomer. While some Barbary pirates were Berbers, many were Turkish or Arab, so there was a decent mix of Mediterranean ethnicities who were involved. 
These pirates were known as a collective, but didn't really cooperate with each other. It was every man or every ship for themselves. But while we typically think of piracy as criminal enterprise independent of legitimate, established government, the Barbary pirates had the tacit endorsement of the Bays, or lords, who ran these regions and were beholden to the Ottoman Empire. Piracy contributed to the economy, but not in the way we might think. Keep in mind that this was during the period of the transatlantic slave trade. The chief purpose of Barbary piracy was not so much the acquisition of goods aboard the ships, but the people. Piracy fed the slave trade of the Ottoman Empire, which was in full swing. To ensure safe travels, particularly in and around the Mediterranean Sea, the United States paid the Barbary states what was essentially a bribe or tribute to protect U.S. ships from attack. But by 1797, the U.S. government was paying a fifth of the annual budget in tribute alone. This was such a burden that they started to fall in arrears. Spending so much on protection money didn't go over well with the American public, surprisingly enough. So much so that Thomas Jefferson ran for president in 1800 on the message of reforming this system of tribute in the election against John Adams, who was seeking re-election at the time, and Jefferson won. So under the new administration, the U.S. raised a small navy. Jefferson was not a huge fan of maintaining a navy, but it sure beat paying tribute. So, using a Mediterranean fund, he was able to increase the size of the navy. Then, in 1801, the U.S. went to war against Tripoli in what would be known as the First Barbary War, or the Tripolitan War. Well, in the middle of the war, in October 1803, the U.S. was blockading the port of Tripoli with the help of Sweden. During the blockade, the Tripolitans stole one of the naval ships, the USS Philadelphia, capturing and enslaving much of the crew. Those who didn't get captured went to Tripoli, blended in with the locals, and in what sounds like a James Bond movie set in the wrong period. In February of 1804, the U.S. seamen snuck over to the Philadelphia, which was docked at the harbor. They crept on board under the cover of night, killed the Tripolitan guards, and set the ship on fire so it couldn't be used by Tripoli. Then they made their escape without any American lives lost. This action impressed many other European powers, who also felt the burn from piracy, but were indisposed as the Napoleonic Wars in Europe were going on at the same time. The First Barbary War would be over in 1805 with a bit of a stalemate, but Round 2 was just around the corner. At this point in American history, the War of 1812 was underway. The War of 1812 was a war on U.S. soil between the states and Great Britain. American history treats this as a standalone war, but British history treats this as an overseas theater of the Napoleonic Wars. In any case, due to the war, Britain urged the Barbary states to resume attacks on U.S. ships. The U.S. ultimately won the War of 1812, in no small part because Britain was overextending itself with a war on two continents. Even though the British were a major power back then, that was still a lot. After the war in 1815, the U.S. was back in much the same boat, 
no pun intended, the same boat they were in prior to the First Barbary War, having to pay tribute. And if they didn't pay up, being subject to pirates who would hold a crew ransom or enslave them. Again, there was a dispute over tribute, but this time with Algiers. This led to another war, but this one only lasted three days. Commodore Stephen Decatur, the leader of the U.S. naval mission, was able to get the leader of Algiers to sign a peace treaty. The treaty provided for the exchange of prisoners, ships, and goods, a fine paid to the U.S. by Algiers. The U.S. would no longer have to pay tribute, and they were granted full shipping rights. The Second Barbary War led to Britain and other European states eventually negotiating their own treaties with the Barbary states to end the practice of tribute, and this led to the eventual end of Barbary piracy. Now, between the late 1700s and throughout the 1800s, the foreign policy of the United States has often been characterized as isolationist, as it was the intent of many of the founders to stay out of European affairs. We're taught that in history and civics courses in high school, and even in intro political science and U.S. history courses in college. Now, there are a couple of reasons for this label, the main one being that the North American colonies that were previously part of Great Britain had been subjects of a major world power that had its tentacles pretty much all around the globe. And the early leaders of the United States recognized that as a fledgling country, their main goal was to maintain their independence from their former parent country. At the height of the British Empire, the Brits possessed or controlled land on every continent except Antarctica. And Britain wasn't alone. A number of other European powers, including France, the Netherlands, Spain, and Portugal, were expanding their influence globally, taking over lands in Africa, Asia, and the Americas, and building colonies in order to siphon the lands of their natural resources, bolster trade, and wield power and influence. That meant a great deal of resources that had to be poured into maintaining these colonies, as well as additional expansion. And it also meant military conflict. It wasn't like these colonies didn't already have people living there. So there were clashes with native inhabitants, as well as conflict with each other. Being a world power wasn't the focus of the United States, at least not yet. So for these reasons, the U.S. would craft a clear and simple foreign policy in 1823, during the presidency of James Monroe. In that year's State of the Union address, President Monroe outlined these four points that would be the cornerstone of U.S. foreign policy. Number one, the United States would not interfere in the internal affairs of or the wars between European powers. Two, the United States recognized and would not interfere with existing colonies and dependencies in the Western Hemisphere. Three, the Western Hemisphere was closed to future colonization. And four, any attempt by a European power to oppress or control any nation in the Western Hemisphere would be viewed as a hostile act against the United States. These pillars would later be known as the Monroe Doctrine. The idea was for the U.S. to limit their involvement in colonizing other lands. And so, unlike the top European powers of the day, 
such as Britain, France, and the Netherlands, the U.S. wasn't going to participate in a land grab in Africa or Asia. But the treaty also broadcast limits to the top European powers at a time when many Latin American countries were asserting their independence and Spain and Portugal, who were the chief European countries that still had major holdings in the region, were beginning to scale back their colonization efforts. The U.S. stated they would not interfere in the colonies that already existed, but restricted future colonization. Essentially, one European-led country, a country that was slowly becoming powerful in its own right, was asserting itself in regards to the European powers of the day, and in effect, these countries were making decisions affecting the sovereignty and way of life of people of color all over the globe, all without their input. As we continue with the series, you'll see that this is essentially a pattern. Of course, this is also while the institution of slavery was alive and well in the United States, as that did not end until 1865, so it's not exactly a shocker. In any case, when we talk about the idea of the U.S. being isolationist in the first years of its existence, while we weren't the world power we are today, or at least prior to 2017, the isolationist label is a bit inaccurate. And while the U.S. was focusing on trying to insulate itself from the outside world, the world was definitely arriving at its shores. When we discuss the immigration of yesteryear, we tend to discuss the Irish or the Italians, but immigrants were also arriving from the Middle East and the Mediterranean. And America would have to figure out how to fit these newcomers from the East into the harsh, rigid hierarchy that came about through the horrors of chattel slavery and Jim Crow. Three years ago, I started Potstirer Podcast and got started in part because I listened to a lot of podcasts, and I still do. I'm a huge fan of podcasts, and I like listening to podcasts about a number of different subjects. Of course, politics, but also true crime, history, social issues and personal narratives, tech and science, movies, music, sports entertainment, and even podcasts about podcasting. And what sets podcasts apart from broadcast media is that people participate from all walks of life. And there's an opportunity to hear the perspective, the stories, the experiences of people who might not be like ourselves. Recently, I was on social media and learned about a podcast called Musings of a Modern Muslim with Freeney. And I decided to take a listen. Musings is a solo podcast with some interview episodes hosted by Freeney a married millennial with kids living in Dallas, Texas. It's very fascinating hearing her perspective as a Muslim woman living in the South. Unlike parts of the country, such as Michigan, with a more prominent Muslim presence, many people who Freeney encounters in Texas are not familiar with Islam or Muslim people, and oftentimes their only impression of the faith comes from news media stories about Islamic terror or oppression of Muslim women. Freeney uses her voice whether it's her podcast or through in-person opportunities to do the heavy lifting to educate other Americans about her faith and her life as a Muslim woman. This is not a burden that she is in any way obligated to take on, but her desire to let people know about her life. 
Whether it's about a time she was grilled at a Southern church as a Muslim representative, or her most recent episode where she talks about contracting a novel coronavirus and her experience with it is authentic. Karini is open and real, and Musings is engaging and easy to listen to. I'm subscribed to the podcast, and I really enjoy it. And I'm sure you will enjoy it as well. Check it out. Musings with a Modern Muslim with Franey is on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. In a number of previous episodes, I've made the case that Donald Trump is, in effect, a consequence rather than a cause of the polarization within the United States and, quite frankly, our decline as a country. White supremacy was baked into the foundation of the United States and is unfortunately coming home to roost in a significant way, ripping this country apart. This is why the President of the United States can call athletes kneeling in peaceful protest against police brutality in the disproportionate killing of unarmed and legally armed Black Americans sons of bitches, but can call the terrorist takeover of Michigan State House by armed white supremacist groups such as the Proud Boys and the Michigan Militia, liberation. The increasing disrespect for democracy and the rule of law and lack of concern for their fellow human, Donald Trump and his followers exhibit daily, while telling black and brown Americans that blue lives matter and telling women that fetuses require their sacrifice as human incubators in the name of pro-life. Rules for thee, but not for me, is a core tenet of white supremacy. But there is nothing new under the sun. In the early 20th century, 29-year-old George Shisham, a Lebanese immigrant originally from Beirut that back then was part of Ottoman Syria, lived in Southern California. At this point in his life, he had been a California resident for a long time, having come over to the States while still a minor and worked as a police officer for the LAPD. He had made a good life in the United States and was, for all intents and purposes, living as an American. But one day in 1909, Shisha arrested a young white man for disturbing the peace. That man's father was a prominent attorney, and he argued that his son's arrest was illegitimate. Not based on whether or not his son had actually broken the law, but because the arresting officer, Shisham, was not a U.S. citizen and ineligible to obtain citizenship due to his country of origin. Also, if he was considered non-white, per California law, he would not be allowed to testify in court, even in his official capacity as a law enforcement official, against a white defendant. So the question of race was pretty high stakes. In fact, George Shisham had applied for naturalization two years earlier. Naturalization is a process by which immigrants become U.S. citizens. In 1909, the historical record isn't quite clear on the timing, but seems it's after the arrest incident. Shisham had his naturalization hearing. He had even worn his police uniform to the hearing. But he was ultimately denied citizenship because of his Middle East origins. You see, the Naturalization Act of 1790 barred non-whites from becoming citizens. This barred both Black Americans, most of whom were slaves and weren't even considered human under the law, 
much less eligible for citizenship, and Native Americans who would be subject to massacres, forced removal from their lands, and mass death due to disease brought over by Europeans, which is pretty much tantamount to genocide. Asians were also barred from citizenship, but unlike Black Americans and Native Americans, it wasn't always clear as to who was meant to be placed in the Asian category for the sake of denial of citizenship. It was largely based on who was coming over to the U.S. in large numbers at the time, including Chinese, Japanese, and Korean people at different points. Prior to the 1900s, in general, Arabs and other groups from the Middle East were, by default, considered Asian and presumed Muslim, and were therefore ineligible for U.S. citizenship. The religion part mattered a lot, because while on paper, free exercise of religion was guaranteed due to the First Amendment. In practice, religion operated as a proxy for whiteness. Islam was viewed by the legal system and political officials as being hostile to American democracy and Christianity, and therefore Muslims were aliens incapable of assimilating to American life. Sound familiar? In contrast, Christianity, as the religion of most Americans, as well as that of European immigrants, was seen as a civilizing force and a stand-in for whiteness. In the field of eugenics, which was popular in the early 1900s, researchers at the time made a racial distinction between Middle Eastern immigrant groups based solely on religious preference. Of course, the view that Christianity made a person white excluded black people, both slaves and freedmen. Well, most Black Americans were Christian, and for white elites, Christianity served the purpose of encouraging slaves to be docile towards their masters. Black churches were viewed as heretical by white Christians. This is still the case in many white evangelical circles today, and it is still debated within evangelicalism. But outside of that caveat, Christianity was viewed as the identity that distinguished the civilized from the savage, the American from the foreigner, the white from the non-white. George Shisham, like most Lebanese and Syrian immigrants at the time, were Christian. And when he sued the federal government to be declared eligible for citizenship, he argued that not only he had been living an assimilated life, he was fluent in English, he had lived in the States for 15 years. He had friends in America who would vouch for him. They had even helped him get a good lawyer. And he was an officer of the law. Not only all that, he was also Christian. In court, Shisham said to the presiding judge, quote, If I am a Mongolian, then so was Jesus, because we came from the same land. End quote. The core of the legal argument was that Shisham was a Christian, not only by faith, but based on his racial background. In other words, Shisham was both a religious and cultural Christian. This argument placed his suit over the top, and the judge ruled that George Shisham was legally white, and therefore eligible for U.S. citizenship. Shisham became a citizen, later got married to a woman from Iowa, had children, and died in California in 1978 at the age of 98 as an American. Arabs and other groups of Middle Eastern descent have been immigrating to the United States since the founding. Prior to 1870, 
The United States barred non-white immigrants, but loosened up restrictions to include people from the continent of Africa after the end of the Civil War and ratification of the 13th and 14th Amendments. This coincided with a major wave of immigration from the region of Syria in the Ottoman Empire, which is now the countries of Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, and the occupied Palestinian territory starting in the late 1800s. Most of these immigrants from Ottoman Syria were Syrian and Lebanese Christians escaping oppression and genocide in the Ottoman Empire. There were some Muslims, Jewish people, and Druze that were also part of the wave as well. Though, unsurprisingly, it was easier for Christians to enter the U.S. than other religious groups, especially Muslims. When arriving here, usually through New York City, these immigrants moved to places all over the country, most notably Detroit, Boston, and the state of Pennsylvania. But once in the United States, much like other immigrant groups, Middle Eastern immigrants found acceptance hard to come by because they were considered different. And many changed their names, learned English, and leaned into their identity as Christians to assimilate and engender acceptance. But still, in general, immigrants not considered white were ineligible for naturalization. This wave of immigration from the Middle East was stemmed in 1924 with the Johnson-Reed Quota Act, which limited immigration to specific number quotas based on country of origin, with a total immigration quota of 165,000 immigrants from outside the Western Hemisphere. Instead of explicitly targeting specific groups, such as people from China or Japan, in immigration laws, as had been done previously. Quotas in this law were 2% of the U.S. population from specific countries as of 1890. Choosing 1890 as a target served a specific purpose. As the United States in 1890 included a much smaller population of immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe, the Middle East, and Asia, and a larger share of the population being of Western European and Scandinavian descent, compared to 1924, or even 1920, which was the last U.S. Census. So it was a way to cultivate a population that had a greater share of acceptable whites. This was also during a period in American history, the 19-teens and 1920s, when Jim Crow segregation, the Ku Klux Klan, Lost Cause mythology, the resulting erection of Confederate statues all around the country were at their height. It was an extremely racist and xenophobic period in U.S. history, which considering that racism and xenophobia have been apparent throughout U.S. history, that's saying something. So a law like this that had the effect of severely restricting immigration from less desirable locations wasn't out of place for that time. Or now, if we're real about it. But despite this early wave of Middle Eastern immigration being over, the immigrants who made it to the United States while the immigration window was still open, as well as their descendants, were still here. And due to cases such as that of George Shisham and a number of other similar cases involving Middle Eastern immigrants, people of Middle Eastern descent were increasingly being considered legally white. I was able to find George Shisham and his family in the 1920 and 1930 U.S. Census, and in both, Shisham, as well as his children, were listed as white. But even at this point in time, 
The place Middle Eastern immigrants fit in the American racial hierarchy was unclear. It was another judicial decision that would solidify the racial status of Middle Eastern descent. In the case of Ex parte Moriez, in 1944, the U.S. District Court ruled that all Arabs, including Arab Muslims, were considered white and were therefore eligible for citizenship. This pretty much cemented the racial identity of Middle Eastern Americans as white in the eyes of the law and the U.S. Census would follow suit. This fight for white identity may make many of us nowadays pretty uncomfortable, and I can see that. While white supremacy still pervades much of American society today, we also live in a society that has gone through the civil rights movement and in a lot of ways is wrestling with its past. In the push towards embracing multiculturalism and diversity rather than the melting pot and assimilation, the idea of white identity as an achievement has fallen out of favor. And that's obviously with good reason. The racial hierarchy has always existed as a tool of social control and a way to keep the masses divided and the elites insulated from any threats from within. And embracing who we are, including our ancestors and our background, should be encouraged. But in doing that, it's important to understand why in the past, these were the choices that many people made. And I think of the question of Middle Eastern Americans fighting for whiteness in a similar way that I think of light-skinned European-featured Black Americans who chose to pass for white. Yes, there has always been a racial hierarchy, even today. Even though some talk about colorblindness, we can look at how society and government treat racial and ethnic disparities today and when it comes to health outcomes, wage gap, wealth gap, jobless rates, who please view as a threat, whose Second Amendment rights are respected, whose right to fight for their lives are respected, who is pushing to get back to work versus those who are most affected by the pandemic. There is a racial hierarchy, but the discourse surrounding it is much more diverse and is coming from so many corners due to the influence of the civil rights movement in the rise of the internet and social media. We discuss and in many sectors try to foster racial and ethnic diversity. We acknowledge our racial and ethnic heritage and admixtures. We resist labels and categories. We no longer have to pick a side. Many of us want to be identified authentically rather than categories created by someone else. This is one of the reasons why today, there is a movement by a number of Americans of Middle Eastern descent to create a Middle Eastern North African or MENA racial category in the U.S. Census. This category didn't make it onto the 2020 census, but perhaps it will in the future. But the world of the early 1900s, especially at the height of legalized racism and racialized terror, meant that the stakes were much higher than they are now. Racial segregation, which is also referred to as Jim Crow, was in full effect for both the South and the North. Race riots, the kinds of race riots where white mobs invaded and destroyed black neighborhoods, were at their height. This was when Black Wall Street, a symbol of black prosperity in Tulsa, Oklahoma, was violently torn apart, set ablaze, and looted by white Tulsa residents who resented black success. 
This was a time when the highest grossing film was a racist propaganda movie that received a special screening by President Woodrow Wilson and revived the Ku Klux Klan. This was a time when lynchings were at their height, mostly targeting Black Americans, but victims also included immigrants and Latinos. And let's not forget that for immigrants, whether or not you could actually become an American and partake in the American dream they invested so much in and left their families and way of life behind for depended not on if you added value to this country or went through the right steps, but whether or not you were the right kind of immigrant. The racial hierarchy in early 1900s America and where you fit wasn't a matter of woke points or authenticity or labels. If you were not white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, you often had to make hard decisions. These were stark choices where each choice carried a real cost. For Black Americans who were born with a phenotype that allowed them to pass for white, they had to choose between retaining family ties but enduring crushing oppression and a lack of socioeconomic opportunity and freeing themselves from that oppression for a better life but cutting themselves off from everything familiar their families, and themselves, and keeping who they really were a secret. For immigrants, especially immigrants from places like the Middle East, they had already made the difficult decision to leave their homeland, way of life, and in some cases, family, to live in the United States. They were often leaving behind persecution, oppression, and hard lives, and they had to invest a lot in the voyage. But making it in the United States also had a cost. For those who did not have a natural place in the already established racial hierarchy, they also needed to make some decisions. Do they opt out of the racial hierarchy entirely and allow society and the legal system to make the decision for them as to where they fit? As it was, the default was they were considered incapable of being truly American, meaning that the sacrifices they made for a better life here in America would be in vain. But in grabbing for the brass rings of whiteness, culture, language, and perhaps community were lost as well. As you'll find out later in the series, despite being labeled white in the U.S. Census and gaining a level of acceptance in society that other people of color, especially Black Americans, could never achieve, many Americans of Middle Eastern descent would continue to be othered and viewed with suspicion and fear. They were legally white, but in the popular culture, not really. Becoming white was, in large part, a false choice. And the old stigma, the old stereotypes, the old oppression would continue to rear its ugly head over and over again. Everything old is new again. In the next episode of the U.S.-Middle East Relations series, we're going to start getting into the meat of the matter. How was the United States involved in the development of the modern Middle East? And why do borders matter? I may take a break from this series to discuss contemporary events for the next episode, and then we'll be back into the series. Stay tuned. Thank you very much for listening to Potstirer Podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcast app. Go to potstirrerpodcast.com slash download and you'll see the links. If you subscribe for free, 
you'll be able to access new episodes once they come out so you don't fall behind. If you enjoyed the podcast, please give us five stars and leave a review. And if you follow me on Twitter, you know that I tweet a lot. If you don't follow me on Twitter, you should. So follow me on Twitter at PotstirCast. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future because freedom is not free.